0: May the words I say and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So week six of Paul. One more to go. Paul and his letter to the churches in Rome. So I just reiterate what I said last week. What I'm using to explore Paul's writings is just one way of reading Paul. There are a number of ways, but this is the way that makes the most sense to me and certainly to the people that I've been reading over the last year or so, getting ready for this series. So, just a quick recap. Paul is a Jew. He keeps saying it, but we need to remember it because we keep treating him like he wasn't a Jew, that he miraculously stopped being a Jew and became some kind of Greek philosopher. But he was never a Greek. He lived in a Greek world, but he was always a Jew. He saw the world through Jewish eyes. The questions he was asking were Jewish questions. He understood history from a Jewish perspective. That never, ever changed. And that's important because when we come to uh, kind of work out the kind of things that he was talking about, we can read what other Jews of his time were writing about. And we can get a feel for the issues and the questions that they had and the worldview that they were bringing to that. And it's a lot of that scholarship that has influenced uh, a number of scholars today, including, as I've said, N.T. Wright, uh, the evangelical scholar from England who uh, has been very influential in what I'm presenting today. Now, just to be clear, he wasn't the let's keep every word of Torah exactly as it's written kind of Jew. He had been that kind of Jew when he was a Pharisee, but when he was converted on the road to Damascus, he became a different kind of Jew. But even that statement is a little misleading. Within the rabbinic tradition, there wasn't one way of reading Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. They treated Torah and still treat Torah like a multifaceted gem. So you would sit and have conversations, discussions about Torah and what it meant. And after you had exhausted one facet, you would turn it and you would approach Torah from a different perspective, not to argue, as we do, about who is right. So many of our church discussions are about who is right. There is only one way of reading the Scripture. But actually they understood that all 70 ways, they talked about the 70-faceted gem, all 70 ways of reading Torah were right. And their discussions weren't about proving who was right or who was wrong, but actually learning Torah in a deeper way and wider perspective that there was more than one way of understanding it and so the discussions were about how to get to the to the all the beauty that was held within Torah that is held within a 70 faceted gem so that's important in terms of what Paul is doing he is taking different facets of Torah in his discussions in Romans but it is fair to say that he did become the kind of Jew who said, let's renegotiate how we read Torah and Scripture and scripture and Torah in particular. Which meant he was pretty radical, because he got to the point where he said, you don't have to keep Torah. You don't have to keep the law of Moses. Now, that's pretty radical, isn't it? That's right up there. So whenever we use Paul to say, Paul was a conservative, we need to remember... That no one who knew Paul when he was alive would ever have used the word conservative to describe him. He would have been right out there on the most liberal end of the church. I said right at the beginning that we have to read Paul because Paul is pretty important. Over a quarter of the New Testament is attributed to him. Not all of it we think was written by him but at least it was attributed to him. We know that Hebrews definitely wasn't written by him, his name was just tucked on there at the beginning to make give it a look more, little bit more credibility when they were trying to work out which books should be in the Bible and the New Testament, which books should be. And there are a few that most people think weren't written by Paul, but were written by people who knew Paul after he died to address issues that uh, Paul would never have had to address because they're about churches that have been around for a while and are trying to work out how to keep going whereas Paul was a church planter. So those were the kind of issues he was addressing. And there's a couple where uh, some people think that Paul wrote it and some people think it was later. So that's Ephesians and Colossians. But even with all of that, when you look at the Acts of the Apostles, where Paul was never actually officially called an apostle by anyone, he just called himself an apostle. It's kind of like somebody calling himself a bishop today. Like Brian Tamaki just called himself a bishop. Well, that's kind of Paul. What? what Paul did? He just said, "I'm an apostle. Jesus appointed me." And half of the Acts of the Apostles are about him, not the others. So that kind of says that right at the beginning wasn't that important. James and Peter were the important ones, but over time he increased in importance. I mean, we have one letter from James and two from Peter. And how many from Paul? Now, as I said, he's a Jew. And in fact, most of the early Christians were Jews. And so they understood the world and history through Jewish eyes. And so we know from reading other Jewish writers that heaven wasn't on their agenda. Getting into heaven was not the issue. It still isn't for a lot of Jews. As I've said, research done in the States shows that half of Jews living there don't believe in an afterlife. Getting into heaven was not the issue. The issue was the covenants. Who would fulfill the covenants with Israel? How would the covenant be fulfilled? How would Israel be restored? Who would be the Messiah? How would Israel be restored to its place And then, through Israel, how would humanity be restored and creation renewed? It wasn't about another place. It was about this place. It was about how God was going to fix what was going on in this world, starting off with how was God going to rescue Israel? That is the theological question and very practical question that Paul was writing about. That's what drove him. That's what shaped his understanding of who Jesus was. So Paul is writing to this church, these churches in Rome, a divided church, a church that's divided between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. The Jewish Christians who are feeling pretty pleased with themselves. We are the people of God. We have seen the Messiah. We've understood that Jesus is the Messiah. We've understood that through Jesus Israel is restored, not as not as people expected, but still that's what's happening. And through Israel creation is renewed humanity is restored and we will help that by keeping torah we are the proper ones and then we have the gentile christians who go well we're super special because well we weren't even members of the people of god and but we still saw that jesus was the messiah as expected by the jews sent by god to fix everything so like you guys should have got it and didn't but we did and like we're amazing and we don't even have to keep torah and we have these two groups of people who just loggerheads with each other. We think our theological issues today are pretty big. Just imagine that. Jewish Christians, non-Jewish Christians at loggerheads about whether you have to keep Torah. It's absolutely fundamental to their understanding of who they are. And so what Paul is doing is offering a way of understanding what Jesus has done that allows them to live and work together together despite their huge differences, because he needs them to live and work together to help him with his mission to Spain, which never actually happens because other stuff gets in the way, but that's what he wants to happen. And a church that is fighting doesn't have the time or the space or the resources to help anyone with mission. And we can see how he does that in the structure of the letter. Chapters 1 to 4 are all about the problem, the problem being Adam and Eve, And how they introduce sin and death into the world and how humanity then comes under sin and is held captive by sin. In chapters 5 to 8 we hear how in the covenant with Israel God promises to restore humanity and renew creation. We hear from Paul's perspective that God has always been faithful to that covenant, always been faithful to that covenant. And that in Jesus God has fulfilled the covenant God has fulfilled the covenant through the faithfulness of Jesus. And he talks about how through this faithfulness, God invites all of humanity to be part of God's work to restore humanity and renew creation. At the heart of Romans is Paul's assertion that humanity has been restored and creation has been renewed through God's faithfulness. God's faith not ours. Which then raises the really important question which we've spent the last two weeks looking at, what about Israel? If God is faithful, and Israel seems to be now on the outer, because the Gentiles seem to be kind of coming in, what does that say about God's faithfulness? And so over the last two times, we've talked about this really important section. It's a really important section because Paul's argument Stands or falls on this question. Is God really faithful? Who or what is God faithful to? Can we trust this faithfulness if Israel seems to have been rejected? And we heard this issue clearly last week, didn't we? With Paul's question, I asked then, Has God rejected his people? And what was Paul's response to that? Can anyone remember? Hell no. Maganoito, the official translation which the translators translated as by no means, which as I said sounds slightly English. Hell no, emphatic, God has not rejected God's people. But as I said last week, this emphatic rejection of that question comes with a warning which we too often ignore. You stand only through faith which we often think is about our faith, and then we can make us look in the centre of, of the story, and, you know, like we're pretty special because everything stands on our faith, and our faith must be pretty cool, but actually, as I said right at the beginning, this word faith can equally be translated faithfulness, and because there's no pronouns in there, it can equally apply to God as to us, and probably more so applies to God. And so this phrase can actually be translated you alone, you stand only through God's faithfulness. Puts a bit of a different spin on it, doesn't it? You stand only on God's faithfulness. Everything is in God's hands. So to Israel who thought everything was in their hands, no. Not in your hands, God's hands. To the Jewish church who thought they were the super special ones and everything was in their hands, Paul says no, not in your hands, God's hands. To the Gentile church who thought they were the special ones and everything was in their hands. No, not your hands, God's hands. To all of us, every time we think it's about us, no, not in our hands, in God's hands. God's hands. So be humble. This is not about you. This is about God and God's faithfulness to all of creation and all humanity. This is about God and God's faithfulness and mercy. So, as Paul says, do not become proud, but stand in awe. So, that leads us to the very last section which we began today. Chapters 12 to 15, where Paul pulls it all together, apart from a few little shout-outs at the end to some people who he knew and described you. Basically, we're nearly there. So, what's this section all about? I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to let you work it out for yourselves. So I'm now going to read a little bit of today's reading and all of next week's reading. You'll understand why I'm reading next week's reading as well. And I want you to ask yourself as you listen, and you can have a look in your Bibles as well. It's Romans 12, starting at chapter 4. You don't have to, but if you want to... I want you to think about what is Paul trying to do in this section? What is Paul's agenda in these verses, in these chapters 12 to 15? What is he saying to the churches in Rome? What is he saying to us? So Romans 12, starting at verse 4, and I'm reading it not from the NRSV, but from the message, which is a paraphrase. In this way, we are like the various parts of a human body. Each part gets its meaning from the body as a whole, not the other way around. The body we're talking about is Christ's body of chosen people. Each of us finds our meaning and function as a part of his body. But as a chopped off finger or a cut off toe we wouldn't amount to much, would we? So since we find ourselves fashioned in all these excellently formed and marvellously functioning parts in Christ's body... Let's just go ahead and be what we were made to be, without enviously or pridefully comparing ourselves with each other, or trying to be something we aren't. If you preach, just preach God's message, nothing else. If you help, just help, don't take over. If you teach, stick to your teaching. If you give encouraging guidance, be careful you don't get bossy. If you're put in charge, don't manipulate. If you're called to give aid to people in distress, Keep your eyes open and be quick to respond. If you work with the disadvantage, don't let yourself get irritated with them or depressed by them. Keep a smile on your face. Love from the centre of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good to friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled and aflame. Be alert servants of the Master, cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Help needy Christians and be inventive in hospitality. Bless your enemies. No cursing under your breath. Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy. Share tears when they're down. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. Don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. Our scriptures tell us that if you see your enemy hungry, go buy that person lunch. Or if he's thirsty, get him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. So what is Paul trying to do here? What is Paul saying? I invite you to either sit quietly, or, if you feel bold, talk to your neighbour about what do you think Paul's on about? in chapters 12 to 15 of this letter to the Romans. You've got three or four minutes to chat, and then we'll see what you come up with. All right, what do you think? What is Paul on about? Yes. writing to groups of people who are at loggerheads Mm -hmm. and spending a lot of time fighting each other. So he's kind of given them a theological framework to kind of re understand what it's all about. And often in the West, that's enough, isn't it? Theological framework, excellent. We're good to go. But for the first thousand years, theologians were people of prayer and pastors. So, you might have the right theological framework, but they needed to be a so-what? What does this mean to how we treat each other? So, two groups in Rome who are loggerheads with each other, he's saying, so, given all of this, this is what it looks like when we live it out. This is how you were to treat each other. If, in Jesus creation is restored and humanity is renewed, and we are the people through whom God is working this out. This is what it looks like when we live that reality. Like if we really believe that humanity is restored and creation is renewed, we are the ones who live that out, live out the reality of that, the truth of that. So he's also saying to them, this is what it looks like on the ground. This is when the rubber hits the road. So all the theology is cool for the first 11 chapters. But the practical part, what it looks like, is those last three chapters. And of course for us, you all heard, of course, our Fakatoki, our piece of scripture, which in, in many ways defines who we are. The piece of scripture that's lurking on our window over there. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. Romans 12, verse 20. Yes. Moment of doubt. So that's all part of that practical piece of Paul. Any other thoughts about this practical piece? Well the body image is real practical that if we are one body and we are the body of Christ it doesn't work if we just go on our own. So no part of the body can function on its own it's all interwoven and codependent. So for them to be Christ's body, they just have to work together and accept their differences in function. And those huge differences that he's talking about, like our church at the moment is having a lot of discussion about how we can hold it together. And uh, a, a number of years ago we had a theological hui where uh, the person who came is one of the people I've been, I've been using for this series, Catherine Grebe, and they brought her over because her whole point is, this is a letter to, to a church in conflict about how they had to hold it together despite the conflict. So that very practical thing. We are held together. So Paul isn't saying stop being Jewish and stop being Gentile. But he is saying, work it out. Work together. Work, work together. Because if you're not working together, you're not being the body of Christ. It's so much easier when we can just go off and do our own thing. I read this morning that in 1990 there was something like 1,600, I don't know where they got this fact from, 1,600 denominations around the world, and today there are about 43,000 which is people ignoring exactly what Bonnie said and going off and doing their own thing. I don't agree with you. I'm going to set up my own church. It's all about me. And probably using Paul to justify it. So, that's Paul. We have one more week to go. And then, I don't know what we'll do. I'll go away for a while. And somebody else will preach. That's what will happen.